0: Welcome to the November and December episode of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation's RehabCast. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox. I hope you're having a fantastic holiday season. Now, in this jam-packed edition, we've got three interviews. Kicking off first with Ben Harder. Ben is the Chief of Health Analysis at U.S. News and World Report. I sat down with him in the moments before his luncheon address and panel discussion at ACRM 2019 in Chicago. Ben is a current center of attention in the rehab world, as his magazine's prominent consumer rankings have in their sites a plan to incorporate metrics into their rankings of rehab hospitals. You're about to learn much more. Also, joining us from the World Health Organization is Dr. Alarcos Cieza from her role at WHO is working to advance the organization's recently announced mission to significantly raise the prominence of rehabilitation in global health systems by 2030. It's a big job, and we get into the details with her shortly. In wrapping up this edition, we'll be talking with Dr. Karen Kepner of Case Western Reserve University, who in the December issue describes the rather low utilization of rehab services post-stroke in the Medicare population, and her efforts to suss out trends that could explain disparities in the use of rehab services. All right, joining us on the Rehab Cast today is Ben Harder, Ben is managing editor and chief of health analysis at US News and World Report, in charge of its incredibly influential and important hospital rankings. Thanks for joining us today on the Rehab
1: Cast. My pleasure.
0: So I understand some big news is in store, and we're going to go ahead and spill the beans because this podcast is not going to air until after the big news has been announced at today's luncheon at ACRM. But you're going to talk in detail about what you've already presaged, which is that the field of rehabilitation medicine, as ranked by U.S. News and World Report, is moving from reputation only to starting to finally incorporate some metrics like most of the other fields that you rank. Um, let's go ahead and start out with what, what are these new metrics?
1: So before I, I talk about the metrics specifically, I would like to, um, to, to say that we, when we evaluate uh, hospitals, we do so with a research question in mind. And so every methodology that we develop to evaluate hospitals starts with what question are we trying to answer and for whom. Mm-hmm. And so with the rankings that we published in rehabilitation, the focus has always been not on, uh, not on any, any rehab patient, but on those who need the most complex uh, and challenging care. Some might call it catastrophic rehabilitation. So, that has been the research question that's animated our rehab rankings from the beginning. Um, and we have gotten to the point where we believe that there are some measures beyond the expert opinions of physiatrists, which is what we use right now, um, that can shed light on that research question. And so, we're specifically looking at curating some of the measures that are available on Earth Compare. Mm-hmm. And certain um, structural characteristics uh, that are of, of the hospital um, that are available to us through other data sources, particularly the American Hospital Association Annual Survey Database. And so those two, um, in combination with our ongoing annual. Uh, survey of physiatrists, of board-certified uh, PM&R specialists, is what we will use for the rankings in 2020. And we expect, as time goes by, that we will be able to identify additional measures and refine how we um, use the data available to us to answer that research question for those patients and families who need catastrophic rehabilitation.
0: Now, that reputational survey part, rehab isn't the only field that's just had a reputational survey for some time due to the lack of available metrics or ones that folks can can agree on. What is the specific question that the rehab doctors are, are asked?
1: So they're asked, um, and, and do people do use the term re, uh, reputation for it frequently? We we did ourselves for many years. Um, I now prefer expert opinion, and the reason for that is that it is essentially what I would consider the wisdom of the specialty. It's not mm-hmm. the wisdom of a generic crowd. It's specifically the doctors who are trained in in the field um, that we that we ask. The question is essentially a hypothetical referral question. We mm-hmm. ask with. We ask um, doctors to recommend up to five hospitals or name up to five hospitals where they, that they see as providing the best care for the most complex and challenging patients in their specialty. So it's mm-hmm. specialty-specific, and it's explicitly focused on the complex, challenging cases. Um, mm-hmm. And so you might think of it as um, essentially what are the best referral centers for the highest level of care in the specialty.
0: I see. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, getting to uh, the sources of data that are going to be used uh, this time around, uh, so you're referencing the CMS Earth Compare tool, and I suppose that tool has parallels to things that are used, for example, in the um, skilled care facilities and so (laughs) forth that you've you've ranked as well. Um, Now, uh, I'm in a unique role here as both a uh, kind of roving reporter for ACRM, host of this uh, ACRM podcast. I do happen to be from a particular type of rehab hospital, that interestingly enough is not, not ranked in that system yes, because yes. We're, we're not an Earth. Uh, we're an LTEC, like, like a few are. What are um, so, I do, do want to ask you about that. That said, most of our listeners uh, are in the Earth, and I do want to uh, reflect that as well. Um, let's talk about first the, uh, the pros of uh, the CMS Earth uh, Compare tool and what do you expect to find most useful out of
1: that? Sure. So, in, in some sense, you're, you're, it's actually one it converges around one question there, because I think you know, you, uh, uh, since you you provide care at an LTAC, um, and and there are some other LTACS that provide very specialized higher level rehabilitation care, um, the there are no data on Earth compare related to the care provided at those facilities. But even for those hospitals that are. Uh, you know, designated as ERFs, the patient population that is the focus of our research question isn't necessarily the patient population that's in the denominators of the mm-hmm. measures that are available on IRF Compare. And so that is candidly a limitation of yes. the data available. And it's one of the reasons that for so many years we have relied exclusively on the expert opinion of physiatrists in, publish- in producing our rankings. Um, that said, I think we have gained enough experience with um, the measures, not only in, in our evolving understanding of the data that are available on IRF Compare, but also how measures such as, um, you know, in other areas of care relate to expert opinion and to um, indicators of, of quality that may be more comprehensive or more more specific to the, the patient population mm-hmm. um, to to gain a lot of confidence in certain types of measures. And in particular, and I think uh, your audience will probably have a, a diverse opinions about this, but mm-hmm. I would assert that um, claims-based outcomes measures can be very powerful indicators of quality. Mm-hmm. They are proxies. They're not perfect measures because claims have their own limitations, um, but they are very often powerfully correlated with other measures of quality, including things like volume um, and and expert opinion and uh, outcomes as measured in registries and so on and so forth. So we think that the the a number of the outcomes that are available on Earth Compare are important proxies for. Even where the patient population, that sort of catastrophic rehabilitation patient, may not be um, the entirety of the denominator or may, in fact, be m- largely missing from the denominator, mm-hmm. um, we think that that still uh, provides important signal for us in the rankings.
0: Right. Um, I suppose part of the conversation you're going to have today with uh, the panelists and so forth with regards to concerns about or compare is the divergence in the rehabilitation field about... Uh, kind of elder rehab versus this younger catastrophic, right. which you're which you're certainly referencing uh, as well, and uh, the numbers uh, with reflect- reflective of that as well. I don't know how many rehab doctors have my experience per se, in particular with some of the more TBI intensive programs. But when I think about this personally, I'll just state um, it has been quite a while since I can recall my last uh, CMS. TBI patient, because the average age of that population is young, you know, in the 40s and so forth. If we're looking at your uh, fo- person who is on Medicare and has had a brain, it's typically going to be an, an elder fall with perhaps a subdural hematoma or something like that, usually more straightforward than car accident, polytrauma, with multiple organ damage and that, and that type of thing. Um, what are your What are your thoughts about how you you mitigate uh, for that when the end might be quite small for given facilities out there that um, that are that are quite focused on that younger population?
1: Right. So, uh, so I think the 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 sample size problem is is a, a big challenge. What is not a, a challenge because the earth compare measures are limited to Medicare fee for service population, is. Um, I think, I think we need to remember that we don't need to risk adjust for the uh, entire gamut of the patient population that different facilities uh, encounter, because the patients who are, you know, the, the young car accident victim who, um, who may be a disproportionate number of the patients treated at a facility like yours aren't going to be part of that measure. And so we don't necessarily need to um, account for all of the, the clinical nuance that affects that population that doesn't affect the Medicare fee-for-service population. That said, if your facility, if many facilities that specialize in the catastrophic um, patient, don't pr- have very few um, patients in the, in the sort of the CMS denominator, um, those measures are not necessarily going to be as um, reliable statistically. They just have smaller sample size, um, and they may not be um, as discriminating as they, they could be. And so for that reason, I think the, uh, you know, what you'll see in the U.S. news rankings in 2020 is a moderate amount of, uh, of emphasis and, and, and weight put on those measures um, because of the, the limited discrimination they offer and because, um, in some cases, the sample size is quite small.
0: I think another concern you're likely to hear is that what defines an IRF, according to CMS criteria, is a set of a list of certain diagnoses as to meet the 60% threshold, about 13 different diagnoses. And within that, there's quite a lot of variants. For example, um, admitting a person with paraplegia, paralysis of both legs, counts as a spinal cord injury for that, but also a person with quadriplegia, uh, all four extremities, on a ventilator, uh, counts the same for the criteria, for example. And um, when you look at the different facilities out there, Those that um, are are more intensive and, say, spinal cord injury, to use this example, for example, are are admitting more of the patients with tetraplegia than paraplegia and that type of thing. How are you uh, rating for severity of of illness um, and, and waiting for that in these new rankings?
1: that's a great question so um, we have limited visibility into the severity of illness within the diagnostic categories that you describe um, and the um, the ratio of patients from one diagnostic category to another is uh, provides some information but it's not definitely the the the, uh, the be-all and end-all we do plan to use as um, a as part of our quality measurement paradigm, the volume of patients that uh, uh, each ERF has seen in certain higher complexity uh, diagnostic categories. Mm-hmm. And what we're envisioning right now is using um, traumatic brain injury, traumatic spinal cord injury, and stroke. And we, we chose stroke even though it, in itself it can range, it can there can be a wide range of severity within that um, because um, both data on utilization and the average in that, in that category suggests that it is more similar to, to the comprehensive, uh, sort of the, the, the high acuity care, um, and also because, frankly, that is the population that we're most likely to capture in the Medicare fee-for-service population. So we know that we're under sampling um, facilities on uh, traumatic spinal cord injury and brain injury um, in using Medicare data.
0: Another question about Earth compare data before we move on to the uh, AHA hospital survey and and what's in that. There are some kind of competing uh, private sources of data that that aren't as specific with regards to payer, whether CMS or others like Mm -hmm. eRehab and UDS. What are your thoughts about those sources of data um, and their accessibility to to U.S. news for these rankings?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because, Those are very valuable potential sources of data. Um, Right now, they're not available to us. um, And what we have done in other areas of care, particularly um, cardiovascular care, where we evaluate hospitals, and we've recently announced as well in neurology and neurosurgery because of newly available registry data, is that we have taken um, either used the data that's being published by the registry or used and or used the public reporting status of individual facilities as quality indicators. And so for example, uh, hospitals that publicly report um, from a registry of um, of coronary artery bypass are hospitals that do better across the board on average in all of the quality measures that we look at, and so we're able to use both the data that come off that registry in the, and are, are in the public domain, thanks to the public reporting, um, and we're able to use whether the hospital has chosen to be transparent about that or not okay. as a quality indicator in and of itself. And so I will hope, mean you know, I would hope that the as the rehab community moves forward with. Um, the registries that they that they maintain now, that there may be some conversation around public reporting, can be voluntary, but that could provide an additional source of much richer information for publishers like U.S. News.
0: I see. I'm going to put my reporter hat back on and ask you one uh, follow up question, then, because that does pique my interest a little bit. U.S. News certainly does have the capacity uh, to to reach out to those organizations. Were you rebuffed uh, by E Rehab and, UD- and UDS, and because? Uh, that, I think, is of interest to the folks who are listening to this mm-hmm. podcast who are in the industry uh, and are hopeful that those data sources can be used for quality improvement. Mm-hmm.
1: We have conversations ahead of us with them, not rebuffed at all, um, but I think that uh, you know, we've seen um, uh, it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. for registries to get to the point where their members, their participants, the participants, the specialty itself is ready for public reporting. And I think that we've seen uh, that full life cycle with some of the registries. Certainly cardiovascular um, uh, has been the arena where there's been the, the most and the, I think the earliest uh, beginning of that work. And even there, um, the registries that are publicly reporting are public reporting some measures and not others. And so I know that that is a um, a conversation that has to happen within PM&R, um, I think if we can encourage it um, and and perhaps accelerate it, that would be um, a, a, hopefully a, a virtuous role for U.S. News to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that that has to come from the specialty itself. Yeah.
0: Now, you put out a call on your blog, I believe, back in the spring that everybody ought to fill out that HA hospital yeah. survey <laughs> uh, since you're going to be using it this uh, this time around. Uh, uh, tell us you know uh, what what you're finding of, of great interest in that survey.
1: so there are a number of structural measures that we're, we're interested in and again remembering that we are looking at the uh, highest complexity uh, patients um, we uh, there are f- several different Variables that we intend to get from the AHA survey. One is CARF accreditation. We, we know that there are a number of uh, process measures and, um, and staffing measures that we can't measure directly. Um, but CARF accreditation is a, a signal that many of those things are in place structurally and procedurally. We think that's an important um, factor. We, um, as we do in our rankings of uh, hospitals in, in general medical and surgical care, um, we are um, planning to have a, an index of patient services um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that come from various AHA variables and we're still working on the composition of that index. Um, that may not be a, a, a rich discriminator among the hospitals that are, um, that are already ranked by U.S. News but we think it is an important additional signal in terms of how uh, mm-hmm. the services that are provided and similarly another set of variables that we would build into a, a clinical technologies index, and again, these are things um, uh, you know that that would be valuable, particularly for that higher complexity patient population. Um, the last thing, as, as I mentioned, is volume, and so those. Mm-hmm. That's not coming from the AHA survey, but those four things together represent what we would consider our structural domain of measures. So we would intend to get select outcomes from Earth Compare. There are a few process measures that we intend to pull from Earth Compare, particularly um, vaccination rates, which we've found to be empirically very well correlated with outcomes and other quality measures. Um, and then the, s- these four structural, uh, sort of aspects of structural care, three of which come from AHA, and one is the volume uh, indicators from Earth nice. Compare.
0: Uh, I know every field of medicine is interested in their field being ranked on what they consider the most uh, relevant uh, metrics, and sometimes those are available and sometimes they are. For, for rehab, um, you know, some of the things I, I gather that are in the Earth Compare survey do include things like, uh, uh, you know, uh, transfer back to acute hospitals, uh, staying out of the hospital after discharge and so forth, and those, those uh, I think everyone would agree are certainly uh, good me- uh, proxy measures uh, of quality. How about the core of the specialty itself, which is functional change, you know, taking yeah. somebody who can barely do anything to doing quite a lot by discharge.
1: That is an incredibly challenging thing to measure in a comparable manner from facility to facility, um, and it's not, that's not exclusive to, to rehabilitation medicine. Um, we, we would love to measure patient-reported outcomes and functional outcomes in, um, you know, in, in all kinds of uh, acute care, and um, the measures are not mature in most cases. There are ways that we can infer them in some cases but um, but I think that many of the measures that attempt to capture that information and can be very useful for quality improvement within a facility are not necessarily standardized sufficiently from one facility to the next such that we can use them for benchmarking and comparing facilities to each other and so some of the measures that we will not use um, from uh, from uh, uh, earth compare for example will would have uh, we are, are ones where we have uh, concerns about the standardization and comparability across uh, across domains, and I, I think that. Um, functional uh, outcomes and functional improvement are going to be a very challenging arena for the specialty to produce data that's really comparable. So it's, it's something. It's a construct we enormously is enormously mm-hmm. important to the specialty, to patients, and to U.S. news. Um, we're not going to um, jump the gun in terms of incorporating data that are ostensibly addressing that into our rankings if we don't have confidence, and if if the experts we we consult with don't have confidence that those are meaningful measures. I see.
0: Um, and uh, we're about to wrap up here, uh, but one more follow up question for you about this distinction between Medicare uh, uh, data and other payers. Is this an issue that you've heard before from other fields of medicine, and uh, how has it been dealt with uh, there? You know, for example, uh, was there a point in time when, you know, you're looking at just CMS data for cardiology and then move beyond that to other sources and that type of thing?
1: Yeah, it, it is It is something that we talk about in every specialty. Um, I think it's more challenging in some ways in catastrophic rehabilitation than in others because of the demographics of the population. Um, obviously, in pediatrics, it's also a challenge, um, whether pediatric rehabilitation or other areas of pediatric care, Um, the solution that US News has used for pediatrics, as you you may know, is that we survey hospitals directly. And we've Mm -hmm. built a comprehensive inventory of of measures with working groups and clinical input. The thing is that's an incredibly burdensome survey for hospitals to participate in. And the only reason we can do it in pediatrics is that there's a very small number of hospitals that really specialize in pediatric care. Um, I don't think that's something we can scale to rehabilitation at this time. um, and, um, and, And there too, getting standardized data from hospitals is always a challenge that we think a lot about um, so we don't envision directly surveying hospitals um, but I think that there are um, you know as you as you said the the e-rehabs the UDSs these these registries present an opportunity for us to gain visibility into a broader population and I hope that there will come a day um, when when we can use that information even understanding volumes of uh, higher complexity, Mm-hmm. Uh, diagnostic categories would be enormously helpful to, to get from those sorts of data sources.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, Ben, uh, you've got the rehab world on the edge of their seats. Uh, and uh, obviously, are about to discuss this in more detail with the conference here um, and with panelists also, as well as at the um, US News Healthcare of Today conference uh, in a week. Um, uh, you're a busy man. I appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, joining us now on the Rehab Cast is Dr. Alarco Cieza. Dr. Cieza is the author of a couple of papers in the, the November 2019 issue of the Archives of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation. She is the author of a special communication paper uh, entitled Rehabilitation, the Health Strategy of the 21st Century, Really? Question um, mark. As well as with some of her uh, colleagues at uh, WHO on Another special communication towards strengthening rehabilitation and health systems, methods used to develop a WHO package of rehabilitation interventions. Doctor Siaza, um is uh, from WHO uh, there at the World Health Organization. She is uh, the coordinator uh, of the blindness and deafness prevention, as well as disability and rehabilitation efforts and programs. Um, And uh, immediately prior to that, she was chair and professor of medical psychology at the Faculty of Social and Human Sciences at the University of Southampton in the UK. Dr. Cieza, thanks for joining us today on the RehabCast.
2: I'm very happy to join you, and Todd, uh, thank you for the invitation.
0: So uh, these special communications in the journal uh, are really a, a call to the, to the rehab field uh, in general. Um, the latter paper that I mentioned is outlining um, uh, uh, an effort that you're going to, the WHO is going to provide to identify certain key rehab interventions that uh, all countries need to be aware of and hopefully make efforts towards. Uh, I suppose let's let's talk about the uh, the first paper first, though, which is the health strategy of the 21st century. Can we make rehab uh, really uh, a focus? And in this paper, you talk about the fact that uh, WHO has made uh, rehab uh, a priority with uh, a goal towards uh, Rehabilitation 2030, a call for action that was launched in 2017. So we need to chat about that as well. But let's uh, let's talk about the impetus of, of your paper and uh, kind of what you're hoping to achieve here.
2: So what um, actually what I would like to or what I wanted to achieve with this paper is um, to mobilize the rehabilitation community to unify it behind a single agenda and actually the single agenda of strengthening health systems To provide Mm -hmm. rehabilitation services. One of the things that we need to be aware of that, and sometimes I say this very provocative, that the need for rehabilitation is huge in countries. Mm -hmm. However, the provision of rehabilitation services is almost what we could say nowhere and especially Mm -hmm. in low income settings. And the call to the rehabilitation community is, okay, we can maintain this status quo or we can do something about it. And I address especially in this paper two issues that uh, I think are fundamental if we want really to change this status quo. And the precondition for that, let me say, because I address two po- two points of the in the in the paper, but the the main the the overarching point is actually rehabilitation is not a political priority, and mm-hmm. what we need to do is to work together to make of rehabilitation a political priority, especially in health and in health systems, and one of the things that. We need to work together towards two is really having a common understanding of uh, what we are talking about when we talk about rehabilitation because we portray it always in very different ways, depending mm-hmm. on on the stakeholders, but also depending on um, on the context. And um, and, and secondly is. Um, yeah, the, the the really the stakeholders cohesion. So it's everyone is looking because of course the strength of rehabilitation is that we have many different stakeholders from the perspective of uh, professional organizations, for example. We have the rehabilitation doctors, we have the speech as language therapists, we have the occupational therapists, the physical therapists, the psychologists and so on. But everyone is advocating for their own field in different Mm -hmm. directions, exactly the same, like the users. And then what we could expect of policymakers when deciding the priorities of the agendas, if everyone advocates for their own specific sector without having a common narrative, then the agenda of rehabilitation as a whole is what suffers at the end. So we really need to make an effort to, to come up with, common uh, understanding and a common identity of uh, rehabilitation especially from a uh, from a health prof- from the perspective of health professionals
0: and it seems like the the world health organization's rubrics for understanding uh disease and classifications and so forth is is potentially quite helpful to that project you point out that rehab is really kind of one of the The top three uh, that that the whole medical system should be concerned with, as in right up there, there is morbidity, uh, as in developing new diseases and so forth, and we want to prevent that mortality. uh, The whole project of modern medicine hopes to prevent and delay death to some extent as much as possible. And then there's also function, uh, you know, so morbidity, mortality, function. Uh, and if we uh, communicate to people and really emphasize that rehab is function and about preserving and developing uh, function, then uh, that will go a long way to, to keeping us, uh, the, the field uh, and, you know, for providers as, as well as the people that we serve yeah. right at the top of the mission statement of modern medicine.
2: Exactly. So it is, I we I always say, yeah, and we communicate. So for WHO, from a WHO perspective, is mortality, as you have said, morbidity and functioning. And only that, also in the health sector, we tend to forget functioning and function. And I, I, I think we can use now the term functioning and functioning as equivalents so we usually use the, the term functioning, but it is understood in many different contexts um, as, as function, which is, it is okay. And however, the rehabilitation community is not advocating for that what we target with our interventions, that is optimizing functioning. And if the rehabilitation does not do that, who else can do it? So it's also this this call to to really all the stakeholders of rehabilitation. Yes, go or put yourself behind uh, functioning and really portraying it and that what we achieve for rehabilitation. Advocate for it as the fair health indicators because actually I would say we don't have any other choice we don't have any other choice for the sake of rehabilitation i have to say to change this status quo that i was talking at the beginning but also taking into consideration the population and health trends around the world we know mm. that infectious diseases are going down that is still there will be many people over the years to come living with the consequences of injuries and, uh, and needing rehabilitation and also that the number of people with what with that what we call non-communicable diseases will be steadily uh increasing and, and we are talking then about people with musculoskeletal conditions, with internal conditions like uh diabetes, like asthma, like also mental health disorders. So it's it's it where it is not anymore about curing uh, but it is really about optimizing functioning, where rehabilitation is the main health strategy for that.
0: Uh, we we probably need to. I think people in the field understand this, but I think um, outside the field and communicating again to policymakers in the world generally, that uh, precisely as modern medicine has become more successful at saving lives and uh, preventing disease and managing disease and so forth. Uh, now, uh, rehabilitation function is as a result, as a direct link, becoming more important uh, to kind of the, the next phase of the whole medical project. You know, we have more people surviving. For longer, mm-hmm. and this is happening now, just as it has, fortunately, in the developed world for some time. But now it's happening uh, in the rest of the world, the developing world, and uh, we are we are successfully saving lives. And this means that the the next phase of the medical system needs to be about the quality of those lives.
2: Yeah. So that is the reason why I think we need to perceive it with this urgency. So it was also a call in this paper, for it is really an urgency there. Uh, to move forward, and again, if not the rehabilitation stakeholders, whose sons can do that, so it's it's really we need to move forward in that direction.
0: Now, you discuss uh, that there was a, a meeting uh, back in July, uh, the uh, 2030 uh, global meeting. Can you tell us about um, that that meeting and how it went yeah. and what was achieved yeah. there?
2: Actually, it was um, a meeting that um, it was a success actually uh, perceived from from two different perspectives. I think from the perspective of WHO and again, for WHO showing to all stakeholders of rehabilitation that for WHO, rehabilitation is a priority and it's in the agenda. It was a meeting where you have um, colleagues, uh, so directors, assistant director generals and so on from across the organization also taking part of this of this meeting portraying that but also from the perspective of the demand from member states member states from countries was overwhelming so we have um, delegates from uh, more than 70 countries from ministries of health that Mm. came to this meeting also uh, because of the interest for rehabilitation, because at country level, you, um, ministries of health are also perceiving this increasing need for rehabilitation services. And of course, it was also an opportunity for the rehabilitation community and stakeholders uh, of rehabilitation at the international level uh, to to participate in this meeting is
0: is the global uh, rehabilitation alliance uh is that part of uh, who or is that a separate organization
2: at this point it is a, it's a separate organization so it's still um it is at the uh, initial steps baby steps of uh, moving forward and it still it's to to see how this this alliance will will move forward. I have communicated communicated also very often that uh, yeah that is it should be in a strong collaboration or a strong yeah a strong collaboration also with WHO. But I think at this point it's still at the baby baby steps and. Um, and uh and need to still to move uh, to move uh, to move forward and WHO is is positive with this de- development and uh, we will see how how things will will move forward. So
0: So it sounds like it was quite an achievement to gather together so many different uh, health ministers from so many countries around this particular issue of rehab and function back uh, this summer. With that kind of opportunity, uh, is there any type of uh, statement that uh, uh, was perhaps produced from that or something that people were agreeing to do uh, and so forth?
2: yeah i so it was a, a, a big commitment to move the agenda forward rehabilitation and also implement one document that was launched during this meeting that is a guide for action it's a guide for action containing technical tools that uh, uh, can be used to support countries and who is already using and some kind of the stakeholders are already using supporting countries and ministries of health to carry out an assessment of the capacity of the country to provide rehabilitation services, also how good and what is the performance of the existing services, developing a strategic plan and implementation and monitoring framework. So it was a a strong commitment from from countries but also from stakeholders uh, to the implementation of this guide for action. There were Another two important messages in this meeting. The first one uh, was around functioning. So functioning being the third health indicator and emphasizing this point that was already mentioned in the paper. So we need to unif- be unified as a field behind this concept and really b- use this as, as discussion point with policy, with policymakers and, and everyone. Been behind it and the this the another point that was emphasized is we need also to bring rehabilitation into primary health care also because and um, there were also colleagues from the Institute of um, health metrics in Seattle the Institute um, um, putting forward all the global estimates of the burden of disease uh, with us. And they also presented the, actually the estimates of the number of people who could benefit of rehabilitation at some point of their lives. And the data was presented in the, at the level of billions. So the, the message was also, you know, the need of is so huge, and uh, and also based on the fact that many of those con or the, those conditions um, for which rehabilitation can be beneficial can be treated at the primary health level, we need also to think of rehabilitation more and more, and in. In, um, at the primary health level and integrating rehabilitation services at, prim- at primary health level because otherwise we will not be able to address uh, the huge need. And uh, we tend to think very often of rehabilitation exclusively provided a secondary level and tertiary level in a specialized setting. But I think it was very important, the message that we need to think more and more of rehabilitation at primary health level to to, to be successful in the future. And, and, and success assess in terms of addressing the still huge ALMED need.
0: And, and part of kind of this overall conceptualization and kind of raising the profile and importance in health systems of the rehabilitation project, I think you identify a couple of key issues, one of which is that... Uh, the uh, the different uh, professional organizations and variety of professions involved perhaps aren't uh, cohesive enough, and the other is that patients, uh, uh, the people, uh, may not be fully on board enough, perceiving perhaps that uh, they're being uh, labeled and, and boxed as uh, disabled and so forth by the rehab system, rather than it again being about this kind of quality of life improvement project that everyone can benefit from. So, what are what are your ideas about how to? Uh, overcome those those two barriers,
2: one of the things that actually ha- doesn't not happen in rehabilitation that has worked very effectively in other in other fields is the advocacy around users so we don't have in rehabilitation really users and users communities advocating for rehabilitation services so it is also a responsibility to Really, from of course, WHO can play a role, but I think professional organization and other stakeholders can also play uh, different roles on really mobilize and also the yeah the professional organization, but also condition-specific organizations. When we talk also the of international organizations around a stroke or around a neurological condition, musculoskeletal condition, also make an effort. To really mobilize the voice of users uh, for advocating for rehabilitation, that really does not happen. And one have to say the 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 demand needs to be needs to come from very strongly from the users' perspective. And if this advocacy works well, of course, um, also um, policymakers need to respond to the. To the, uh, to the request of civil society and uh, to the request of civil society coming from, from users. So I think all stakeholders of rehabilitation in terms of professional organizations and, and international NGOs and um, and also local and national NGOs have a responsibility to not only think of the provision of services and not only think of of education of their own profession, but also of mobilizing um, these, um, these user groups.
0: Now, if folks listening to this podcast want to kind of uh, get involved in uh, kind of the Rehabilitation 2030 idea or perhaps uh, learn about the, the next meeting that you're going to have uh, related to this, uh, what are the steps that uh, that individual professionals can take?
2: yeah we so we have a web page on rehabilitation twenty thirty where we also have the um, all the information related to the meeting that was in uh, two thousand and seventeen, also all the information with the report and even the link to the um, actually to the webEx uh, recording uh, of all the sessions. everyone can get the information in the, in there simply um searching um in uh, searching in the web with rehabilitation 2030 World health Organization you immediately come into the into the page and then we have also a contact so send an email then we will be able to uh, then include in our database and provide this information and and then um, invite um Provide additional information to everyone who, who requests it.
0: And finally, let's just chat for uh, a minute about the effort yeah. to create a, a who uh, package of rehab interventions and how you guys are, are going about that and yeah. where you are in the process.
2: So what I would say, what I would say, anyone who has interest to know the details about this uh, about this work can read the paper, there is already there, quite a lot of intervention. I think in terms of the broader perspective, if it is one of the first requests that we get, especially from countries where services, rehabilitation services are almost not available, is the request of, okay, if I need to start providing rehabilitation services, what are the interventions that need to be provided? What are you talking about? So it is it is really the, the, the package containing information of what are the interventions that need to be provided from a rehabilitation perspective when people have certain uh, limitations in functioning and have certain health conditions. It is also the way and the strategy that WHO has to introduce rehabilitation into universal health coverage, because universal health coverage means that anyone who needs certain services provide, receive the services that are needed, including rehabilitation services, according to the need without financial hardship. And one of the first steps in order to move forward towards universal health coverage is to be able to provide the information. What is the budget that you need to spend in order to be able to provide those services? Or what, are, what is the budget that needs to be covered by insurance schemes? So if we can have or the, 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 this package of interventions will provide also the basis to calculate what is what is the infrastructure that is needed to provide the interventions, what are the consumables, what are the competencies of health professionals that are needed to provide those interventions, and then what are the professions behind, so that also a budget can be created, and then governments and ministries of health can uh, look for mechanisms to, um, to cover um, the uh, cost of the provision of the services. So it's really the entry point for the thinking of universal health coverage.
0: Now, uh, I think one of the more challenging aspects when it comes to budgeting uh, your your national uh, health service and everything, uh, you know, for for small as well as uh, large economies. Um, when it comes to rehab interventions in particular, and something the field needs to be very frank about, is that we are qualitatively different as to when the stopping point is and what the value is of a given intervention. There's not so much, um, there. You know, obviously there are bleeding-edge uh, advances in, in every field of medicine with regards to particular medications and so forth and surgical procedures and that type of thing, but there is something qualitatively different about some aspects of rehab in terms of the therapy sessions, uh, the equipment involved and so forth, and how long uh, you provide rehab services for each intervention based on what gains you appear to be seeing. Mm-hmm. And I think the where the rubber hits the road probably for uh, a lot of these health ministers may be you know what is the most value that we can get out of each of this yeah. package of rehab interventions and so forth. So you're going to uh, be be trying to to bite into to that big problem.
2: Yeah, uh, but we also have to be um, aware that such a package of interventions and that is also some some of the work that WHO is now initiating is the entry point to making an investment case for rehabilitation for rehabilitation. And uh, we are already working very closely with our Department of Health System and Financing in, in order to make um, this investment case. Okay, what it, if if governments and if uh, ministries of health uh, do an, a certain investment of a certain amount of uh, of um, dollars? So what is the the return? that is expected. And, uh, and we are really exploring different approaches for that. There is not enough done in rehabilitation in this field, but we are moving forward also to this direction because indeed, as you rightly say, it is one of the first questions that also come um, in the discussions when Ministries of Health. What do I get out of invest- investing in rehabilitation? And investment cases is something that, um, that we are moving forward to, and the, this package of of uh, rehabilitation interventions is also a fundamental uh, step um, and a foundation for that.
0: It seems that uh, that you know the treatment uh, and improvement of, of function, of course, that is uh, key to the. The rehab model and everything as well, but uh, there there is a flip side of uh, function for every single treatment throughout the rest of medicine as well. So it's something that all health systems have to be thinking about. You know, what is the uh, the life of this individual going to look like? Uh, ver- you know, if we provide X, Y, or Z procedure or medication or so forth, and that's where things get very sticky very quick in terms of you know who's going to pay for what and, and what is that worth.
2: Yeah. So and never. Yeah, one would should not uh, never say that is uh, that the road is easy, but uh, that can never be the reason to not to move forward in um, in in the in disentangling and really creating the evidence and putting forward the evidence that uh, will enable all of this. But you are exactly right. So it will be the discussions, and and when you go into at the country level with a specific discussions, is where um, yeah things get concrete and and uh, things get also very often complicated. But the more we have the information available and uh, and disentangle and mention. What are the kind of services and interventions what we are talking about when we talk about rehabilitation? The uh, better can these discussions uh, be moved forward.
0: Well, um, I think uh, this is an important project that H- the WHO obviously is is putting forward and uh, hopefully via this uh, little podcast interview, uh, more of the uh, ACRM and journal readers are, are aware of the project and perhaps can get involved uh, themselves. I do think that, um, although obviously American is right there in the name, but uh, at any rate, it is an international organization. The ACRM as an interdisciplinary type of rehabilitation organization very much matches kind of the uh, at least one of the the key goals of, of what the WHO is talking about in terms of bringing together the disparate uh, professions uh, all related to rehabilitation under under one project. and uh, it's an organization where folks uh, from different fields. Uh, do, do seem to play quite nicely together to to achieve national health aims in, in the US and, and elsewhere. And uh, we can certainly use more of that.
2: Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, indeed.
0: Well, Dr. Cieza, thanks for your time today. And uh, I appreciate your joining us.
2: Thank you very much. I was very happy to join you.
0: Joining us now on the Rehab Cast is Dr. Karen Kepner. Dr. Kepner and her colleagues are the authors of Utilization of Rehabilitation Services in Stroke, a study utilizing the Health and Retirement Study with Linked Medicare Claims Data. This is in the December issue of the archives. Dr. Kepner is assistant professor in the occupational therapy program at the School of Health Sciences at Cleveland State University. Dr. Kepner, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me so your your paper is about an incredibly important issue as as many of them are uh, in the archives, and in this case, it's about access to and use of uh, stroke rehabilitation services and you draw a lot of interesting parallels here and uh, talk about uh, the the hypotheses that uh, that you and your group had that led you to do this this study and so forth and uh, we're going to get into that in a minute uh, first I, I wanted to chat for a moment about um your your uh, work at uh, at Cleveland State, and I see that you have a particular interest in healthcare uh, disparities and uh, you actually mentioned what I thought was interesting in, in a reply to an email requesting this uh, interview that you were going to be spending some time in prison. <laughs> uh, uh, can you tell me about that?
3: Um, I have a, developed a relationship with our local women's prison. it's a reintegration center so the women are, um, up to two years uh, before release into the community. So we have been working on providing occupational therapy services over at the um, at the women's prison, specifically looking at um, daily living skills. But currently, we're running a few different studies, so collecting data about sensory processing, life experience, leisure, um, and hopefully getting some information out that'll be valuable to other OTs and then other um facilities in the area.
0: Well, this just raises so many questions for me as someone in in rehab. I don't make sure the general public even could process or understand what we're discussing right now, which is the fact (laughs) that I think most people are aware that people in prison populations may have some degree of uh, mental health disorders, and certainly that applies to homeless populations and so forth and that type of thing. But you're talking about impairment to the level that people can't uh, function in their daily routines and they're in prison
3: right so we're looking at i mean the problem with a lot of the prison population i mean there's it's there's a um a lot of people in prison and women in particular who have mental health concerns um and a lot of young people in prison who haven't developed life skills that they need to get out um the recidivism rate is really high so pe- i think it's up to 80% of um people individuals who are incarcerated end up back in prison within um i think it's 8 years now mm-hmm. um and a lot of uh, a lot of the research suggests that their lack of opportunity and lack of real s- skills mm-hmm. is what pushes people back into the criminal lifestyle and back into the prison yeah. system.
0: America's prison systems are some of the largest uh, health care providers in, in the United States, which is kind of scary, actually. A lot of people don't realize that. Mm-hmm, yeah. So we can we can either provide that care uh, up front and uh, maybe keep people out of prison or end up, end up doing it later, perhaps. I don't know if you share that opinion, but that's mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, well, fascinating work there. Um, and so this uh, work, however, is on the CMS population, the Medicare fee-for-service population, and uh, you're calling through – uh, a lot of data here um, about utilization, including the diagnosis codes and what people are reporting on this uh, survey in order to determine um, their, you know, how much they're, they're using rehab services. So let's get to kind of the general idea. You, you tell us what, what spawned you and your group to do this particular study. What were you guys thinking?
3: Well, I was the only um, therapist in the group, and trying to find a population of individuals who may be underserviced was kind of my prim- primary concern. When you look at the um, guidelines for stroke care as a therapist, you know that if people come to therapy, you can you can um, check for small changes in people, provide services, you know, even a caregiver education, different kinds of um, exercises or um, adaptations, but that people aren't necessarily coming to therapy because they don't think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and even as a therapist, you um, thinking about referral patterns, thinking about whether or not physicians are referring people to therapy after they've gone through that initial episode of stroke. Mm -hmm. In the literature, there's a lot about stroke in the early stages. So say up to a year or two years, there's definitely not as much that looks long-term at stroke survivors. So that was where I had gotten that idea, Mm -hmm. Um, and I was just lucky enough to be in a situation where we had access to the Medicare claims data, and so the linkage between the Health and Retirement Survey and the uh, Medicare claims data um, was—I shouldn't say it was an easy feat, but it uh, uh, was—lend itself to this study.
0: Yeah, so that um, Health and Retirement Study has been going on for a while, uh, a large project. Is that—and that's based— uh, what institution is that based out of?
3: The Health and Retirement Survey is um, at University of Michigan. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so uh, you guys uh, hypothesized that potentially quite a lot of variables could, could end up being related to people utilizing services and, and then end up narrowing down uh, on a couple. I'll kind of uh, uh, brief our listeners with a with list here. Um, the uh, number of comorbidities. The severity of the stroke, um, the presence of any new stroke, uh, the higher the socioeconomic status, and I would, I would agree that would seem reasonable that uh, uh, people's higher socioeconomic status might be more aware um, or have people around them who can get them better access to services. Um, mm-hmm. History of regular physician visits certainly makes sense. Um, their baseline physical activity, how high that is, the size of their social support networks, and so forth, but all those types of things might drive people to use more rehab services after an incident stroke over the course of the following uh, decade. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and, and cut to the chase, because that's that's not ultimately entirely what the, the data proved, at least turned out to be statistically significant. What did you find?
3: We really just find that found that age was the primary driver of
0: services mm-hmm. and another um, incident stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you find that somewhat surprising?
3: Yeah, I was really hoping as an OT to look at, um, those social factors to be more significant or some of the lifestyle factors. And, um, but it makes sense that the age and another stroke would put someone back into the system. You know, as we age, we, we tend to have more, di- uh, disabling conditions. If you ha- of course, if you have another stroke, you'd end up back in the system too. Um, so not necessarily surprising, but, you know, hoping that there'd be some other factor that would have come up that would maybe point more towards intervention or something that we could do to help people.
0: Right. Um, the The overall numbers pr- might be lower than, than listeners might recognize in terms of how, I mean, these are the folks who are in the, Medicare system have had a stroke, you would think perhaps the majority might be referred to rehab services. Obviously, many of them might be mild strokes, and presumably Mm -hmm. that's what this uh, reflects, but uh, it's around 20% of folks who are accessing rehab services with most of that being in the first two years. Is that right?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was also surprising because there was a report from the CDC a number of years ago. I think it was one of the kind of landmark reports about people's utilization of therapy, and they had actually reported up to about 30% of people using therapy services after a stroke. So we didn't find quite as high of a pattern of usage. Mm -hmm. Um, And All the guidelines suggest that really people should be seen after they've had a stroke, seen once a year for at least a screening by an OT or PT to detect any functional changes.
0: Yeah. Um, and you draw the parallel that, um, and you mentioned that there's other research showing that stroke survivors in the community aren't getting the same level of formal care as individuals with mm-hmm. other neurologic conditions. Might think of perhaps uh, Parkinson's disease uh, or MS or uh, so forth. I mean, I mean, obviously there are potentially progressive diseases that, that demand continuous follow-up, but but perhaps mm-hmm. there is less of a recognition than there should be that stroke is can be progressive as well, or certainly changing that a, a, a stroke is going to, uh, you know, certainly result in an immediate functional decline and getting back to a certain level, but things will continue to change and evolve over time that, that may mm-hmm. necessitate therapists getting involved. Right,
3: right. Yeah, it's it makes sense for the neurologic conditions to have some progressive decline, but I do, like you said, I don't think that, um, it's kind of common knowledge to think, Hey, I had a stroke and maybe in two years, because some, I have certain kind of unforeseen challenge that I might become more sedentary. And then that might impact other things, maybe make me less likely to get up out of the house or, um, make me a little weaker. And maybe I have a few more falls, but then, um, unless we really take a careful look at those things, we're not seeing it. Mm -hmm. That's just my, My hypotheses,
0: and uh, you know, uh, I suppose in terms of you know reasons why it could entirely be sussed out, one presumes that there that there must be some linkage to some of these other kind of social determinants and so forth. But you do talk about the fact that there are certainly some limitations from this genre of of research. How, How would you describe those?
3: I mean, because we use the, it was nice to have the health and retirement study because we got some of those social determinants of health. So social support, we looked at lifestyle factors, we could look at socioeconomic status, work, um, uh, employment, but it was at two year intervals. Mm-hmm. So we really don't know what was happening between, the only way we captured some information was through the Medicare claims data. So we could look at utilization between the waves, but um you know, anytime you look at you use survey data, it's it has that limitation. There's some recall bias. There's also that um, it's not capturing everything that's happening in between.
0: Did you see any way? I mean, I'm sure that gets very hard with uh, this level of data, but um, that that it, you could determine what people's thoughts were about the efficacy of their their rehab interventions, or or whether they felt that they were improving those who, who were using it, maybe perhaps um, uh, those of a similar apparent through the, through the survey questioning level of magnitude of stroke who maybe weren't getting as much access.
3: Yeah, I mean, in this survey data, we weren't able to capture that. I believe that the NHATS data um, has more of those uh, variables, and I don't know that much about it, but I have been curious about looking into that particular data set more because they've been looking a little bit more heavily at rehab services and I think perceptions of rehab as well as other functional measures. So I think there may be some other surveys that are coming out or at least have been out, but adding some variables to them that may be a- able to capture some of those, but we weren't able to do that with our data
0: set. Okay, very good. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it is, uh, uh, to, my, to my knowledge, uh, uh, relatively novel type of, of approach, I mean, looking at the, matching up the survey data with what was actually in uh, build for and in CMS to really uh, make that, make sure that data was was valid. Um, is, is that, well, at least certainly for this particular type of question about utilization of, of stroke uh, rehab services, um, is there a larger body of, of research or people doing similar things?
3: Um, there are some people doing it, but I don't think that it's done enough. I think, mm. especially now with some of the payment changes right now, I, I believe that therapists should be getting more involved in this kind of work. I feel like you know there's good collaborations that people can have with um, researchers who are looking at large databases. I just don't think that therapists in general are um, are doing a lot of that work. But I think it's I see it I see it increasing.
0: Well, um, utilizing tools like this, or uh, just kind of in this in this general area. um, uh, Are you going to uh, kind of pursue these types of of questions further with stroke rehab in particular or other conditions?
3: I hope to be doing some more large database work. Um, I'm working on a few different projects. I'm not sure that I'll focus on stroke Mm -hmm. in the near future, um, but definitely looking at large databases and how we can um, get a little more word out about uh, what therapy can and cannot do or looking at utilization, what may be factors that limit or uh, facilitate people's use of therapy is something that's interest, of interest to me. Great. Excellent.
0: Well, I, I think this is a good overview of the study for our, our, our listeners. And um, if there's anything else you wish to add, uh, feel, feel free. But otherwise, this looks great.
3: Thanks a lot. Yeah, I, th- I think that um, I was excited about this study. I'm happy to get it, it out there because I do believe that we use some pretty Um, unique ways to do the analysis and the databases I think were there for us to use. And um, it wasn't necessarily the most um, earth-shattering results, but definitely a step towards thinking through other studies in the future that could maybe highlight therapy a little bit better.
0: Definitely. Okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time today.
3: All right. Great. Thanks.
0: And that's it for this November and December edition of the Rehab Cast. I'll see you in 2020, and be sure to put October 21st through 24th on your calendar. It's the 97th annual conference in my hometown of Atlanta.
3: ACRM will be visiting Atlanta twice in 2020.
1: First up will be the ACRM Training Institute at the spring meeting. Held April 23rd to 26th, this economical hands-on series of workshops and community meetings is ideal for networking and increasing your involvement in the world of rehabilitation research and clinical training. Then join us in the fall for ACRM 2020. Coming off a record-breaking year in Chicago, the annual conference is the number one meeting for interdisciplinary rehabilitation research and clinical practice. Go to acrm.org and click on Meetings to get started.